Be turning to Romans chapter 8. We're going to get started there tonight. We've been dealing with holiness, practical holiness, in the Christian life. And we'll start out tonight after we read the scripture, we'll pray, and then we'll review the things that we've covered the last three weeks, and then basically wrap up tonight with our part in this matter of personal, practical holiness. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. I thank you for the things you've already given us from the Scripture in this study the last few weeks. And now tonight, may our hearts be open. May we recognize that living by grace does not release us of the responsibility of seeking to live holy for you. I do pray, dear God, you'll give us some things tonight that will help us in our walk, that we better please you and be what we ought to be for your honor and glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just to review a little bit, remember, of course, first of all, that the Bible's teaching on holiness is not for our defeat, but it is primarily for God's glory and our best. There are an awful lot of people who think when it comes to this matter of practical holiness, that that is just there to leave us in bondage and defeat, when the reality is exactly the opposite. It leaves us in liberty Liberty to do that which is right, and also it's for the best for us. After all, if you're going to sow what you reap, you sow the wrong things, you're going to reap a whole lot of the wrong things. You want to reap the right things, and you sow the right things. Makes all the difference in the world. Now, you remember, we dealt with the problems that people have with this matter of practical holiness, and that is our attitude towards sin is usually self-centered instead of God-centered. We're more concerned about how it affects us than what it does our relationship with the Lord. That the fact is that when we sin, we have sinned against God. That's what David said with his great sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Remember when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he said, God forbid that I should sin so great sin against God. Joseph didn't even have a Bible and he understood that. That's always amazing to me. When you think about that, he didn't have a Bible yet. And yet he understood that God was a holy God and that our walk is to be pleasing to him. Our second problem that we have is that we do not take sin seriously. Whenever we are more concerned with the size of the sin than we are the fact of the sin, then we are headed for some major problems. It's not the size of the sin that is the main problem. It's the fact of sin because all sin is against God. Number three, God's holiness is the standard. Not our culture. Not even our church culture is the standard. The standard is God's holiness and the Bible reveals to us what that should mean to us in our daily walk, which is why he says so much about the Christian walk. Number four, holiness is not an option for the believer. It's not a take it or leave it thing. It is his command for us. Then the fifth thing that we reviewed on this matter was that we are made holy in our standing before God through Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But we are called to be holy in our daily lives. 
Then you remember we saw two basic truths. When we got saved, we got a new king. It's no longer the flesh, no longer the world. Our king is King Jesus. He's the Holy One. He is the Word of God. He is the Holy Son of God. And He is our King. And we have a new kingdom. We're even ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be living down here, but our new kingdom is the kingdom of God. And that's what we're to be living for. The battle for personal practical holiness is not a one-time thing. It's daily. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Now, we want it to be so simple. We want it to be so easy. But God gets the glory when God's people, who are still encumbered about by sinful flesh and still surrounded by the world, makes decisions to glorify His name by walking in obedience. If, we, if He just made us robots, that we had no choice, that we always had to do right, we had no choice about it, then He would get no glory from our life. But the fact that we consider Him most important. And he has set us free. Remember, the old man is crucified with Christ so that we no longer are under the bondage and the dominion of sin. We can make the right decisions. You remember when Paul gave his testimony in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 1? He talked about what he did before he got saved. He talked about being a blasphemer, a murderer. He was injurious. He threw Christians in jail, even tried to have them killed. But he says he received forgiveness because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. But then he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, not whom I was chief. How could he say, I am chief today? Because when he was lost, the things he did, he did ignorantly in unbelief. But when he sinned after he got saved, and his battle is described for us in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, uh, when he sinned then, he knew exactly what he was doing. And when we sin, we have no excuse. We don't have to sin today. Unfortunately, we do. And thank God, God has a remedy in that for us. So let's talk tonight about our part in this matter of personal holiness. First of all, our responsibility is obedience. The responsibility for holy living lies squarely with us. All right, so we're saved by grace, and that's true. Shall we live in sin because we're saved by grace? God's answer to that in Romans 6 and verse 1 is, God forbid... We should not commit sin thinking somehow that that makes our grace more special. Thank God, because I am saved by grace and he has set me free from the dominion of sin and the dominion of the power of the flesh and the devil himself can't even make me sin that when I do, it's on me. It is my responsibility that thank God I can make the decision to do that which is right. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. He describes it in other places as putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Now, I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to notice verses 5 and 6 of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He starts out by saying pretty much what we read back in Romans chapter 8. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth... 
fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now that command is to us. We are to put something to death. Mortify, therefore, your members to not allow them to do these evil things that he talks about in these verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And then he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of God. We are to run the race. We are to run it right. We have a cloud of witnesses around us. A lot of witnesses, people who've gone on before. Remember, in chapter 11, he talks about many of the heroes of the faith. In that hall of faith discussed in Hebrews chapter 11. And here he says, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. All right, they stood for Christ. Some even died for Christ. We ought to be willing to live for Christ. It's what he wants us to do. In James 4, verses 7 and 8, another command to us. He says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then he says, draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. Now, there's two things that are our responsibility. Actually, three. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and draw nigh to God. And God says we do that. He'll do certain things so that we can walk in obedience to his word. In 2 Peter 3, 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot, and blameless. That ought to be our desire. It ought to be our goal that our daily walk would be without spot and blameless. I am to rely on the power of the Holy Ghost to help me and to realize, I believe this verse, I believe all the scripture, but notice he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can do right through Christ which strengtheneth me. It's not in my power. It's in his power. And thank God, his death on the cross of Calvary. The old man is crucified with him. Thank God for that. He has made it so that I can do right. But I have to take responsibility for my own sin. Now, it's just natural. And any, anybody who's a policeman, we've always seemed to have some, it seems like, in our church, uh, that whenever, the, and I remember doing ride-along when I was a chaplain with the Madison Police Department. And it didn't make any difference who they stopped for speeding. The speeders always had excuses to justify what they did. I don't remember in the time that I was out riding. Now, maybe the police have heard this said, but, uh, but I didn't see it while I was out riding with the police. Somebody say, you're right, sir, I was speeding. It's my fault. I'm glad you're doing your job. Boy, that'd shake them up, wouldn't it? And then they're going to test you for drinking. But anyway, that's another matter. But too often, we say that we are defeated when we sin. No, not at all. We are not defeated. We are disobedient when we sin. 
Now, see, that's it. Now, you may feel disobedient, you may feel defeated because of what you did, but that's not the problem. The problem is you were disobedient in what you did, and that is on you. Don't be like King Saul, who lost the kingdom because he wouldn't own his sin. Unlike David, who when David was confronted, he didn't make any excuses. He simply said, I have sinned. You want victory in your life. Well, let's be obedient to him in this matter. We are either obedient or we are disobedient. Disobedience may cause us to feel defeated, but the reason that we are defeated is because we chose to obey. Let's get honest. Hey, listen. In the United States of America today, we live with a victim mentality. Anything that goes wrong in our life is somebody else's fault. We need to own up to our own sin because that's really the only way we get right with God. Then there are the ingredients to put sin to death. Again, in the Colossians 3 and verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he mentions a number of things. That word mortify means to put to death or to destroy the strength of, the vitality or the functioning of, to subdue or to deaden. Therefore, this must be something done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that it is his will that we not sin. But where does our part come in? First of all, two ingredients to that, we must get some conviction. You know, I feel today that there are a lot of believers in our churches that the only thing they're convicted about is that they don't need to have convictions. That's all they're concerned about. And any conviction that the church may have that they don't have yet, that's okay. Now, if the church is preaching the word of God, you better be concerned if your convictions are running slow. Uh, don't just make up your own conviction because there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end are the ways of death. In order to do that, you have to get in the word of God. You see, the first part of the conviction is this, that a holy life is required by the Lord and that a holy life is his desire for your life. We need to teach that to our children. They need to know that. When he says in Romans chapter 1, now I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the, or chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Next word, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, how in the world are you going to be transformed? The Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. In verse 11 of Psalm 119, he says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. We can only renew our minds to turn our thinking from our thinking to God's thinking. What do you mean? Well, whatever God says in his word, he's right. And I need to think like God thinks. If God says something is wrong, then it's just wrong. That's just plain. That's easy enough. 
If God says something wrong, it's just wrong. For instance, he told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day they did, they died. The devil comes along and says, yea, hath God said? And then he says to Eve, you'll not surely die. But wait, God had said they'd die. God may not have used the word surely, but that's not important. He said they'd die, period. That was all that mattered. But Eve decides she's going to do her own study and make up her own mind. So she saw that it was pleasant to the eye. It was a food to be desired to make one wise. And she thought, you know, this looks pretty good to me. Her conviction was not in the word of God. And if it's not in the word of God, their conviction is not in God. Had she just obeyed God's word and not eaten it, not given it to her husband to eat, there'd be no death. We've got two funerals coming up this week. Why? Adam and Eve. They didn't take God at his word. And whenever you don't take God at his word, there is a reaping that is not going to be good that's going to take place. You need to settle that matter. Obedience is the pathway to holiness. But it is only as we have his commands that we can obey him. Conviction that what God says is right and is to be obeyed. I don't know how many times I've quoted my life verse, but it's Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. I just settled it a long time ago. God's word is right. If he says anything that I don't, that if he says something's wrong and it doesn't seem wrong to me, I've already settled it. I'm wrong. God's right. He's right about everything he says anything about. That takes care of it. That's the just living by faith. Faith in God, that God knows everything. God knows better than I do. God's always right. And I'm only right when I agree with God. That's the key. In some areas, knowing what his will is is simple. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands. I know that it's wrong to steal. I mean, no matter what the situation would be, if the thought of stealing came up, it would be wrong to do it. I have a conviction about that. Stealing is wrong. Why? God says so. That takes care of it. That settles it. It's done. But there are some areas where we do not have a direct word from God. I mean, let's face it. There are some things that they didn't have back in the Bible days and they were not referred to. For instance, can you imagine if some Bedouin out there uh, would have read the verse? I'm talking about, let's say, uh, 3000 B.C. or, or 1500 B.C. And they read, thou shalt not smoke camels. Can you imagine what they would have thought? This is ridiculous. You mean you, mean you go and you light the tail of a camel and, and watch the smoke go up, fan the flames? Uh, that wouldn't have made any sense. It doesn't say that. So do we have other verses that help us with things like that? They didn't have televisions back then. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cell phones, supercomputers that you could carry in your hand and walk around with all day long. They didn't have texting. There wasn't any social media. None of that stuff was covered per se. But there are principles that are involved that can affect every one of those matters. So let me give you four criteria on this. Number one, is it helpful 
physically and spiritually and mentally. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. Now, for instance, let's, uh, now we know that the sin against the body is fornication. He says that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. The sin against the body is fornication. Every sin that a man doeth. It is not against the body, but the sin of fornication is against the body. He says that. He's very plain about that. All right, so let's take, if, I, if I'm, uh, oh, let's see, uh, thinking about drinking alcohol. Now, I've got other verses that tell me alcohol's wrong, to be sure. But tell me, if I was witnessing to someone, well, let's go to the smoking thing. I'm trying to witness to this lost person while I'm smoking a cigarette and blowing smoke in his face. Is that going to help me to win them to Christ? Then I'm not going to do it. Now, there's also another reason I don't smoke. Well, there's actually a couple. You know, I'm one of those guys that I think if God wanted us to smoke, he'd have built our nose out of brick and put it on top of our head. Uh, And he didn't do that. That's enough for me. But, uh, But still, nonetheless, the rest of that verse says this. All things, well, the whole verse, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And nicotine definitely brings you under its power. My mom and dad were both smokers. My dad used to say, well, I can stop anytime I want. I've done it a thousand times, which meant he couldn't stop over and over. Why? It had him under its power. Alcohol brings you under its power. With the very first drink, your judgment becomes slightly impaired. With the very first drink of alcohol, that's a proven fact. Now we've got a nation that's been convinced somehow that medical marijuana is okay. And now one of the last, the latest articles that we read on that, we've got a problem with the brain function in a new generation of young people around the world because of the marijuana, the problems that it's causing. But I'm not going to be smoking marijuana. I'm not going to be eating it. I'm not going to be doing anything with it. Why would I do that? Well, everybody's doing it. So you're going to vape and you're going to sniff glue and you're going to take LSD and for you and heroin so you can get hooked on that. Give me a break, man. We've got Bible verses that, that let us know that's, that shouldn't be part of our life. By the way, those things will break down your defenses to keep from doing evil. They only lead to more evil. Here's another. Does it hurt others? 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. And then he says in that next verse, he says, For all that do so have sinned against Christ. Yeah, my freedom isn't to be treated in such a way that I fought that which I shouldn't be doing, that Christians have conviction against, that might tempt them. Especially young people. You may feel you're free and you're already a Bible scholar at your young age and you already know all this stuff, but you don't care. You're going to do whatever it is you want to do and you don't care what other kids follow you or other people follow you. Unfortunately, there are adults that are like that as well. They don't care what other kids, how they see them act out in public or how they see them dress out in public and how that might have an impact on the young people that see them in the stores. Uh, They don't care. And there's something wrong with a Christian that doesn't care how their example affects others. It can be a sin against Christ. 
And then, of course, the fourth thing is, does it glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So you search the scripture to get conviction, but that's only half the battle. It is one thing to have a conviction that something is wrong, but you've got to make a commitment then not to do it. That's where you mortify, mortify the deeds of the flesh. In Luke 14, 33, Whosoever of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's conviction. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, Little children, these things have I written unto you, that ye sin not. You should have a conviction that you do not want to sin. You want Bible standards in your life. Make it your aim not to sin. Remember, he describes some things over in James. Turn over there a moment. James chapter 1. We have grown up in a society that teaches you to fulfill all your want-tos. All the things that you want to do. And because people did that in the Bible, whenever they fulfilled their want-tos that were wrong, it always ended up costing lots of other people. Heartache and trial and trouble. But notice in verse 14, he says, But every man, this is James 1, verse 14, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. That word lust simply means desires. And enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, when they think about it, and they plan for it, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So make it your aim not to sin. Usually, our strongest aim is not to sin too much. But our aim should be not to sin, having some conviction. Imagine a soldier going into battle, not wanting to get hit too much. Many have no convictions. Some have the convictions, but no commitment. Get convictions with commitment. For instance, we made some decisions. Thank God we got saved before either one of our children were born. And so we had just begun learning the Bible. We got saved about uh, two months before Kathy was born. And uh, as we began growing in the Lord, we began getting some conviction about some things in our life. We weren't brought up in Christian homes. We just expected our pastor to teach us some things and that if he taught it from the book, he was telling us right, and he did. Thank God about a lot of things. As our children, as Kathy got a little older, of course, Carrie came along about eight years later. It was eight years, isn't it? About an eight-year difference. Um, We had made the decision that we didn't want, for instance, now this was our conviction, a conviction that we put commitment to that we were not going to allow our daughters to have Barbie dolls. Now, I know there are a lot of people who think, oh, but that is so simple and, and that's so it, it, amoral. It does, I didn't feel it was right. Little girls were supposed to be trained to be godly moms. Amen. I didn't think they should be dressing and undressing adults, especially little girls. So we called the grandparents and we told them when we made the decision about the pants issue, we told them don't buy them any pants and don't buy them any Barbie dolls. You want to get them a doll? Get them a baby doll. Baby dolls will be fine, but not, not Barbie dolls. And of course, grandparents being what they were, and when you consider they were all lost at that time, 
uh, they went ahead and bought the Barbie dolls. And they bought the pants. And when they sent them down to us, my wife always opened up the presents first to make sure that what was, you know, you don't want them to open a present and then say, well, we're sending it back to grandma and grandpa. So she'd open up the present and uh, see it, box it back up, send it back to them. If you want your grandchildren to have a present from you, here's what you can get them. But you can't get them this. We already told you. Now, we kept it. We weren't being ugly. We wanted them to give something to their grandchildren. That was fine. But we set up some rules in our home. And we were not going to give in to those rules. Let me tell you another one. I, I didn't smoke. I didn't even smoke before I got saved. I didn't have anything to do with it. Didn't want it. I stood over the, the barrel that we lit on fire, you know, whenever the trash got big enough in the backyard. Back when you could do that kind of thing. And, uh, man, I didn't like breathing smoke then. Why in the world would I just suck it into my body? That didn't make a bit of sense. But I, uh, my wife didn't smoke. And so we made the decision, nobody's smoking in our house. Well, most of our family smoked. So what do we do? We told them you can't smoke in the house. You want to smoke, you go outside and smoke. But you can't smoke in our house. We're not going to be breathing that stink four or five days after you were in our house. Not going to happen. If they came on a Sunday, they knew they had to go to church or they had to go someplace else while church was going on because they were not going to be in the house while church was happening. Right. Those are rules we made. We kept them. We kept them. They either came to church or they left. And that was fine. Those were convictions we had. We believed in being faithful to church. I know they were lost. They didn't have any convictions about being faithful to church. But my wife wasn't going to stay home on Sunday morning fixing food for a bunch of people who wanted nothing to do with God when we were supposed to be in the house of God. Now, those were our convictions. All right? Now, you may not have those convictions. Okay, that's fine. I'm telling you, those were our convictions. And we just stuck by them. If you're going to have convictions, if you're not going to be committed to follow your convictions, then you really don't have convictions. Got into an argument one time. It wasn't all that heated. But with the Christian school movement, we were dealing, Carrie will remember, when we played volleyball against, uh, in the state volleyball tournament. The association had rules about how low the, uh, or how high the, um, the bottom of the uniform could be. And now our girls, of course, they wore things that, no, I've always worn things that looked like skirt, and they had to come to the bottom of the knee. And that's our rule. They're going to play volleyball. They're not pros, not going to be pros. And if my daughter was a pro, she'd still have to dress right. I mean, I, I think this Christianity thing is seven days a week, 24 hours a day. God doesn't give some out for it because you're playing a sport. But even though their rules were not as strict as our rules, they didn't even make the girls obey those rules. Now, what was really hypocritical about that was every rule they had about fine arts had to be done exactly to the letter according to the rule or people got disqualified, but they wouldn't disqualify the teams that had their girls with shorts way too high. And I said, listen, let's just, let's just put down we don't have any standards. No, no, we got standards. I said, but you don't enforce them. If you not enforce them, all you're doing is telling people that you're a liar. No, no, we got standards. No, you don't. The standard is you're not going to obey the standard you got. Now, that, I don't know about you, but that irritates me. 
I'm glad the police give us an extra five miles an hour, but that's another matter. <laughs> okay, we're talking about getting convictions. Get in the Word of God. Find out what it says and stand upon it. What's needed then is personal discipline. It does take discipline to keep the commitment to what convictions on holiness that you have. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Notice beginning in verse 24. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And what's he saying? He's talking about spiritual discipline. Now, I guarantee you, you take any athlete that wants to be, especially a world-class athlete, they may have some natural talent, but believe me, they still have to practice and practice and work out and work out and work out and work out and work out. And a lot of these people, unfortunately today, they have enough character to do the work that need, they need to do so that they can be a top athlete. When they reach that pinnacle, they then begin to lose all the character they had and they lose their spot. May I say Tiger Wood? He's an excellent example of that. Took an awful lot of work to attain that, the heights that he had attained, but then his lack of character lost it all. Unfortunately, character today is something you don't see much in people. One preacher that used to say that character always brings prosperity, and prosperity destroys character. How many people had enough character to get things that their parents never had. But they don't teach their kids that character. Instead, they try to give their kids everything that they didn't have as kids, and they destroy their kids' character. And there are stories like that all over the place every day of this world. Character. Personal discipline. We must discipline our lives to get a steady diet of the Word of God. You read the Bible every day. They say, I believe we should read the Bible every day. There are going to be times when you're not going to be able to read it. Someday that's going to happen. But that's not a thing for defeat. Read it the next day then. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. I mean, hey, there are things that are beyond our ability to see in the future. Things that are going to happen that may interrupt us a day. Well, all right, read it the next day. You know, I got tired. Some people stop reading their Bible, for instance. When they make a plan, they're going to read it through in a year. That's reading it three chapters a day, six days a week, four chapters on Sunday. You'll read through the entire Bible in one year. And sometimes something will happen where they're not able to read all three chapters. And they may only get to read one. So they've got to make up the chapters that they didn't do the next day. But then the next day, something gets in the way. They only read another one. Now they see they've got a whole bunch of chapters to read. And they get defeated and they quit reading. Don't get defeated. 
When I was reading, and I did this for decades, reading six chapters in the Old Testament every day, five chapters in the New every day. Six chapters in the Old Testament will take you through the Old Testament twice a year. Five chapters in the New Testament will take you through the New Testament six times in a year. And I would keep a record of where I was at, and I would read through. But even in the pastorate, there are times... When things happen where the schedule gets all messed up, people go into the hospital, emergencies in people's lives, different things that take place where I might only get one chapter in. So what did I do the next day? Six and five. Six and five. And if I only read two chapters the next day, I still read six and five the next day. Six and five. After all, does the Bible say you got to read six and five every day? It doesn't, does it? Why Why should I feel guilty because I didn't read six and five? All right, let's say instead of reading through the Bible in a year because you had missed a day, you only read through it in one year and one day. Is that defeat? No, you ought to be excited, man. You read through the Bible. Don't stop when you get to the book of Leviticus. Especially don't stop when you get to 1 Chronicles and the first 10 chapters are nothing but long names that you don't have a clue what they mean. Just read them. Now, see, I, I, I believe this with all my heart about reading the Word of God. Let's say, let's say you read four chapters tomorrow. And when you're done, you're thinking, you know, I don't remember anything I read. What good did it do me? Well, if you run water through a strainer, how much water does it hold? None, but it'll be cleaner because the water went through it. And this is the water of the Word of God. Even when you didn't understand it, that's all right. You read it anyway. And you keep reading it, and you'll find the more you read it, the more you'll understand it. But you've got to be in it. I like what one preacher used to say when Dallas was one of those TV shows that was on the TV and very popular. He, he told the people that said that they, uh, that they didn't read the Bible because they couldn't understand it. He said, you couldn't understand Dallas either if you watched only one line a week. And I'm sure that was probably true. I never saw it. I don't know, but I'm sure that uh, you wouldn't understand it if that was the case. So the word of God is absolutely the key to this matter of having conviction. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. The word of God, we must discipline our lives to get a steady diet of the word. And Satan will always fight us on this point. He doesn't like the word of God, which is why he started his conversation with Eve. Yea, hath God said, and then denying the word. I just want the devil to know I believe God and I believe his word. I believe he's right about everything. I'm just going to keep reading it. He doesn't want me to read it. I know that. Now that word meditate therein, that too many people, when they think of meditating, they think of Far Eastern mystical religion of transcendental meditation, which is always wrong, which is a reason you shouldn't do yoga as well, because that's all part of it. Amen. Right. Study it if you have a question about that. But that's something a Christian, that's like these people, they want to do aerobics, and although they're against rock music, they play the rock music so they can do aerobics. You mean you can't exercise without music? So I'm sure for our service fellows here that, uh, that the Army and the Air Force always helps them by playing music whenever they do exercises. 
Because you can't exercise without music. That's hogwash. That's nonsense. If you want to exercise, that's fine. You don't have to have music to do that, though. If you're going to use music, use the right kind of music. But definitely not rock and roll. But back to this matter of meditation. It is not finding yourself an imaginary friend or thinking about a word. There are some people who think about their spirit guide, Jesus. Jesus is not a spirit guide. The Jesus of the Bible is God. And just sitting there saying, Jesus, 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 that's not meditation. Proper kind of meditation is thinking about the word, how it is to affect you, what it is telling you to do or not to do, and making it a part of your life. Thinking about what it is saying, that's biblical meditation. Too many people don't think about the Word of God. Think about what it means, what it's about. Here are three questions to ask yourself with each passage you read. Number one, what does this passage teach concerning God's will for a holy life? Number two... How does my, my life measure to that scripture specifically? Where and how do I fall short? And don't generalize, be specific. Third question, what definite steps of action do I need to take to obey? Think about it. Meditate upon it. There's another necessary ingredient, and that is perseverance. The Bible says in Proverbs 24, 16... For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Guess what? Even shooting high to be everything you ought to be every day, you're still going to mess up once in a while. So what do you do? Get up and go again. Get up and go again. Too many of us, unfortunately, treat the word of God and this matter of of, uh, doing right like diets. Man, we're into that diet. Then the first couple days you can't do it and you found that those couple days brought all that water back where you thought you lost weight. Oh, what's the use? And you quit. And now you're still defeated again. No, no, you just keep going. All right. Though a righteous man falls seven times, yet he gets up again. He rises again. Uh, Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Be content and serve Him. Live for Him. We have a personal responsibility, and through Jesus Christ, you can be as holy as you desire to be. When I went off to Tennessee Temple University in 1974, now I came from a a Yankee church, uh, good people, sweet people, and thank God their testimony helped bring me to salvation. They were a conservative Baptist church, Although I don't remember that ever being brought up in any conversation while I was there. Uh, But the conservative Baptist churches back then uh, were basically theologically conservative, but their standards, there were just an awful lot of things they did that I would never do today. But since that's where I got saved, that was the level of my standards. For instance, it was not uncommon for us for in the pastor Sunday school class, for have, us to have a class activity at the lake with uh, females wearing their bathing suits and the guys wearing their bathing suits at the lake. And I'd never do that. I'd never do that today. We did that back then. Uh, but I went off to Tennessee Temple. Man, they had all kinds of rules. And so I did what most students do when they go to a college that has rules they don't have. I complained. How about that? Isn't that a shock? 
I complained about a lot of things. Matter of fact, after I'd been there six months, I figured I knew better how to run that school than they knew, and they'd been doing it for 40-some years. And they had put out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of missionaries and preachers around the world. What an idiot I was. Well, there were two preachers that came to Chattanooga. I had never seen them in person or even heard them speak in person. And uh, they were Jack Hiles and uh, Jim Vineyard. Now, if you've ever heard Jim Vineyard, you know that he was a wild man. This man, man, he'd walk the pews and throw chairs. He did all kinds. I'd never seen anything like that before. And uh, th this guy ran bus ministry for a while for Jerry Falwell, and then he ran it at uh, Hiles Anderson. Then, of course, when he pastored out at Windsor Hills in o Oklahoma City, uh, he ran a bunch of bus ministry things there, was very successful at running bus ministries. So he spoke first. When he got done, uh, then Dr. Hiles got up. And Dr. Hiles preached the message on criticism. He, he preached that message for an hour and a half. It was a four-point message. He only preached three of the four points. I'm thinking after the first hour, I'm thinking if you'll shut up, I'll come forward and get right. Because, uh, man, he just raked me over the coals in that message about having a critical attitude. Now, he didn't know he was talking to me. When he finally ended the message, I went forward and I got right about my critical attitude. And I decided that night that I was, all those, all those standards that they had at Tennessee Temple at that time, I was going to get in the Bible and find out if they were taught in the Bible or not. And if they were taught in the Bible, then I should go by them because the Bible said so. And if they weren't taught in the Bible, well, I remember signing a paper when I first went to school there that said, as long as you're a student at Tennessee Temple University, you will abide by the rules of the university. Now, whereas I didn't know whether or not all those standards were biblical or not, I did know that lying was wrong. And so as long as I was there, and I, I, I figured this out too, that God knew all the standards they had before he sent me there. He didn't send me there to complain about him. He sent me there. Uh, listen, there's a reason why. I get it. I get it when people complain about the standards that Madison Baptist Church has. As a matter of fact, I probably said the same things when I was at Tennessee Temple that they say. So why should that bother me? That's the way I was before I actually got in the Bible and did an honest study. And I didn't get in the Bible to try to prove their standards wrong. I got in the Bible to find out, is this what the Bible's teaching? When it came time to graduate, I graduated in 1976 from the uh, university, from the college part of the university. And uh, when it was over, I went up to Dr. Robertson and I said, Dr. Robertson, I want you to know that when I came here, I didn't have many of the standards that you have here. But as far as I know, I have all those standards now because I got in the scripture. I can tell you from the Bible why I have what standards I have. I can show it to you from the Bible. You might agree with me. You might disagree with me. I don't care. It uh, doesn't matter. I did the study. I believe I know what it says, and that's why I have the standards. That's enough for me. And that's why, let's face it, when we talk about standards, uh, what standards does Mass and Baptist Church have? That basically means what standards does a pastor have. Isn't that right? Because it's amazing, another pastor comes in with a different set and the church will change to fit his standards. Unless, of course, 
you get some convictions from the scripture. Because it doesn't make any difference who that pastor is. God's standards are still the same. The Bible hasn't changed. So you need to find out what it says. Get your convictions. And then get a commitment to live by those convictions that you have. That's why. So we can walk holy and glorify our Lord. What ought to be the desire of every believer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Dear God, help us with these things, I pray, as we meditate upon it. I do thank the Lord that you give us the opportunity today, whether it be through Vimeo or Sermon Audio or, or YouTube, to put these things out there where our people can, can go back and listen again and can listen again and meditate upon the things that they've heard preached from the Word of God. Have your way in our lives. Help us to walk holy before you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. Heads bowed. We're going to sing softly. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Maybe there's a commitment you need to make. Not necessarily a commitment about a particular matter, this or that. But you're going to get in the book. And you're going to decide that you're going to do as you can to walk holy. And even when you fail. You're going to rise up again. You're going to get right with him. Thank God if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, please bless us in this invitation in Jesus' name.